90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Oh, pretty good. Still recovering from my turkey coma, but uh, back back in the classroom, so I'm ready to go. Yep, everybody's back. Uh, finally, we, we had uh, someone in our department had a defense early Monday morning. Oh my gosh. And that, that was rough. <laughs> that sounds like an awful way to anxiously spend your Thanksgiving holiday. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, um, so uh, what's new on your end? Well, you'll be proud of me. I upgraded some tech of mine. What did you do? <laughs> Nothing scary. I didn't like do Windows, you know, eleven or anything. Um, <laughs> I got a new, I got a new Android phone. Um, so I got the Samsung Galaxy S six Active, and yeah, I've got my cat games in full swing. I'm super excited. <laughs> So is is this the one that you're supposed to be able to like drop in the toilet and it survives and all that's waterproof and Right, exactly. So I had the S4 active and it was amazing. I mean, I I was walking outside in the rain and I dropped something, I leaned over and my phone for some inexplicable reason was in my like front shirt pocket. Um and it plopped out into this mud puddle, like a one and a half foot deep mud puddle. <laughs> And it was fine. So I have to have this phone. Like, there was no choice for me whatsoever. It was quite amazing. So, um, yeah, we'll see. I haven't dropped it yet, and that's good. Yeah. But, uh, God, the screen is unbelievable. It's unreal how in two years how much they change. Yeah, it really is. Uh, we were talking about computer update cycles today, and a lot of departments, you know, update uh, faculty computers uh, on a time scale that used to be perfectly applicable but now is probably not frequent enough uh yes um yes i absolutely agree with that um there's all kinds of updating going on at ou and i know a lot of the faculty are sort of up in arms saying why would you mess with something that works just fine how it is and even me a non-techie cringes at that kind of attitude so <laughs> yeah the the, the, the the sweet sounds of you know square wheels rolling across the countryside <laughs> Uh, I'll be sure and bring that up at the next faculty meeting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so um, I was proud of myself, and I spent the weekend getting acquainted with that, and uh, that was pretty much my most exciting moment for the last couple of days. Yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, if you if you have feedback on that, you can send your hate mail address <laughs> at the end of the show. <laughs> no, it is true. It seems like a lot of time in academia when something's working, you know, we have our job to do, and we don't spend time upgrading our tools uh, uh, until yeah. it's absolutely necessary. And at that point, it's really painful. <laughs> Which the absolute necessary point is when all of your Paleo Mag software works on, you know, Windows NT. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As you know. <laughs> yeah. There, there is some point where keeping up with the cycle is a little less painful. It's, you know, spreading that hurt out over a long period of time <laughs> instead of several weeks of intense dread and fear. Exactly. <laughs> well, what have you been doing lately? Oh, I've been trying to get ready for AGU and kind of revisiting uh, how I use different facets of technology. So trying to 
kind of reorganize, re-up myself on apps that I'm keeping on my iPhone and my iPad and reorganizing things on my computer a little bit. So just making sure that my tools are staying sharp. Uh, and in that process, also, since I'm going to be on the road next week, I realized that I have to have a poster done by the end of this week. So that's been the focus for the last few days. <laughs> I understand that frantic mad dash um, to get those posters done. So I think uh, when we were talking about sort of tools for making presentations, that's kind of where we left it hanging a couple of weeks ago. Am I right? Yeah. So we had talked about some resources and lots of great books and talked about things that drive us crazy about graphs and how to present data, but we didn't actually get to the part about posters. I, I'm really disappointed in you, John. I said that's where we left it hanging, posters. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's not on their game. <laughs> you can send your collective groan <laughs> as an audio comment. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, I think posters, you know, you, you talked a little bit about walking around a poster session and you could instantly tell when there was good design and good presentation and not. And that kind of made the difference sometimes whether you stopped to look at the data or not. Uh, yeah, it's absolutely right. Um, before we get into our preferred poster making methods, because I'm sure ours are actually both the same, um, I, I sort of want you to talk a little bit about, we've been talking in my research group a little bit about graphing tools, and I was running a couple of these by you, and I wanted you to, I've linked a couple of them in the show notes, but um, I know this is a big deal for you, and this is sort of a follow-up from that first show. So there's some other graph things that we're starting to use in our little group besides Excel, which is a big deal for us. <laughs> and it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you'd be excited. That's what I want you to quickly go through what you told me when I sent you these links to um, these sort of graphing softwares, because they're not as hard as I thought they were going to be. Right. I mean, you know, there's lots of kind of WYSIWYG or what you see is what you get tools out of the box that you can buy, uh, mm -hmm. like Kaleidograph and Igor and some of those that we've talked about in the past. Right. But so you had sent one uh, that was views. I think is how you would say it, like V-I-E-W-S, views, is, but it's spelled V-E-U-Z. That is exactly how we decided that we were going to say it too. <laughs> yeah. And I actually hadn't heard of this, and I'm not really sure. It has ternary diagrams. Right. which are useful, and they're not in matplotlib because there is a request for that, and somebody, which would be me, hasn't got around to pushing <clears throat> on that. <laughs> Thanks, uh, John. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of the other things that are in it, I think, are really better served by the package matplotlib in Python. Uh, it's okay. under a lot heavier development, and matplotlib 2 is about to hit with some really big improvements. Uh, also worth checking out, would be Boki, that's B-O-K-E-H, uh, which lets you do some really fancy interactive HTML graphs and really nice things. Uh, there's other, uh, all kinds of other libraries, D3, no, excuse me, <clears throat> uh, D3.js, among others, that are a little more complicated. But I would say matplotlib probably gives you just about everything you need as a scientist to make really great figures. Uh, see, I'm already all in on this Boki, number one, because of the name, but number two, just their little, uh, on their front webpage, just their little examples of what they do. I mean, these are beautiful. Yeah, beautiful I, graphs. 
I will say Boki is not as developed as Matplotlib. Matplotlib has a pretty long history. Um, and there's a lot changing in Boki right now. And that's really exciting from like playing with data and playing with the code. But if you want something that's bulletproof and stable, uh. Matplotlib is where you would want to go. But I have been playing a little bit with Boki and I kind of like it. So I'm going to keep playing with it. I see the differences now. Okay, so I need Matplotlib then. <laughs> Matplotlib is... It just got to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Matplotlib is definitely what you want to start with. And like I said, there's going to be some really big changes coming out very soon uh, that are great. The defaults get a lot better, and there's some really nice new features added. But where it's at right now isn't bad. I've been using Matplotlib uh, since probably about 2005. Wow. Uh, yeah, and it was, it was pretty good then, but I've made all kinds of animations and all kinds of stuff with it. It's what pretty much every published figure that I've made that is a graph of data has been made in, uh, for the last 10 years. Wow. Okay. So this probably is a really good thing. Um, I wanted to look up real quick too because i know our university has this lynda.com subscription and you know i know a lot of people go there to try to elementary learn excel and stuff like that um but it does have some matplotlib stuff in it as well so, right so that's good um you could always use that resource um if your university has it and i know like our students are using this stuff because it's free i mean excel is free too but not everything is free to students these days um as when we talk about what we use for poster making, right? Because yeah. I know Adobe has made a lot of big changes in how they get our money, which it's totally uh -huh. worth it. <laughs> but I know, you know, grad students can't always afford even nominal charges. So we're going to talk about some alternatives for that too. Yeah, well, and I mean, that's the wonderful thing about Python and its packages is they are totally free and open source. And if you want it to do something and it doesn't, you can add that functionality and it will probably get rolled back into the next release so everybody has it. Yeah, that's uh, that's really awesome. And that's one of those things where you can say, yeah, that's why you actually need an introductory programming class, geologist, just because you never know when you're going to need this stuff. So, Yes, and I actually had a discussion with some people on Twitter about this this week because uh, I'd been sent some some scripts by somebody and... I was just in shock at <laughs> how some of these calculations were done. And I said, wow, you know, we really do need all science right now is effectively some form of computing involved. Mm -hmm. And we really do need basic computer science classes. You need to know uh, different programming structures, what a pointer is, what a for loop is, what a while loop is, what an if statement is and how it works. You really need to know those things now by the time you leave college. It makes you so much more employable no matter what your field is. Uh, it's so true because even, I mean, you say all these things and even students who are saying, well, I'm going to go into industry. I don't need to worry about this. Well, that's not true because um, that was one of the things that set you apart in industry because a lot of the analysis software you can write little do loops for and stuff like this. And if you don't understand that syntax it puts you a lot farther behind. So even though it may not seem like it's actually applicable to your job, it really is. Um, I'm sure we'll talk about curriculum at some point. So. Oh, yeah. Well, and I don't I'll know how many... i that rant. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I don't know how many times there's been some little task 
that needed to be done for me to do something in my research that was monotonous, boring, and repetitive. And any time I have to do something more than 10 times by hand, I write a program to do it for me. <laughs> so I was, I was talking with one of, my, uh, one of my colleagues today about this, and he said that he's teaching a, a large class. Um, and so when he's talking about alphabetizing his papers... Mm-hmm. for grading he said he's read some different alphabetizing algorithms and then he implements them and i said oh you have digital papers he said no no i implement them like in real life <laughs> 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 which i thought was the best thing ever yeah so, <laughs> so see knowing computer stuff is still still relevant in real life <laughs> yeah you uh, can you I- can bubble sort your students exactly <laughs> Exactly. It was pretty great. (laughs) Um, But on to posters, since that's your most pressing thing at the moment, I'm guessing. Yeah. And we'll talk about tools that we use. But after that little side rant on programming, uh, (laughs) we might as well segue right into the side rant on color schemes. (laughs) All righty. I don't know if you've seen posters that or slides or anything that are you know bright uh yellow text on Mm -hmm. light blue backgrounds or dark blue text on dark red backgrounds or things that are just impossible to read or dark red text on red backgrounds yes i've seen that in the past month (laughs) (laughs) or you're like me and you have no idea what colors look good together which I don't either. And you've got some awesome tips for this, which I think is both hysterical and genius. <laughs> well, so the, the one that, not the one that you're talking about, but one thing is you can use Adobe's Kuler, K-U-L-E-R website, that you select a color and it will show you complementary colors and all that. That's um, just boring cheating, though. Yeah, but my favorite technique is I find a movie poster or an album cover that I like, and I swipe the color swatches right off of it. <laughs> so now you have to have, you know, a good taste in albums or movies, though. Yeah. That and could go bad. <laughs> it could. And I even play a game. Uh, this poster might not, this might be the first one in a while that isn't strictly based on an album cover. Um, but for a while, I would play a game where I would try to incorporate elements of the album cover into the poster and see if people <laughs> could guess the album by the end of the conference. With, have you had success at people guessing it? I have. So I did Abbey Road, and it had the kind of the crosswalk at the bottom of the poster as part of the oh. background design. Mm-hmm. I think I've seen that one. Yeah. Um, let's see. I did a, a Fat Boy Slim album last year. Yeah, that one was pretty funny. I don't think I would have been able to guess it just because I'm not that conversant in Fat Boy Slim albums. But <laughs> <laughs> I really liked the look of that one, that's for sure. Yeah, so this year's, we'll see. Right now, I'm mostly worried about getting the content on it, and then I'll dress it up uh, before I print it. But really, you think about it, they take people that are excellent designers and way above our pay grade Mm -hmm. (laughs) and have them make these posters, and they spend a long time thinking about things like colors. And it just seems silly to me to let all of that work go to waste on one poster, I might as well use those color swatches on mine too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, that is one way to look at it. Um, I will say like this also has sort of historical roots insofar as um, the people that used to draft maps 
for, I mean, specifically for the oil industry, because that's where my roots are. Um, they were not, you know, geologists like today they're bachelor level geologists. Um, but they used to be graphic designers because of this exact problem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, we use a lot of color in our maps in the oil industry and it makes a huge difference. The second you show your manager or something, if it's got bad colors, no matter how good the data is, it's really hard to just mentally get over that. It's how our brain works, you know? Um, so we employ graphic designers to help us color challenged with that. <laughs> well, and this is one place where I think that we've actually gone backwards in academia. Mm -hmm. Before we had cool. widespread ability to make our own graphics on computers, departments hired, depending on the size of the department, one or multiple uh, artists. Mm -hmm. that when you did a publication or gave a talk or something like that, you would take your data to or take your sketch of what you wanted and say, I need a slide or a figure of this, and they would plot the data like, in the most literal sense of plot. Uh, yes, exactly. And I know like our geologic survey, we still employ a few drafts people to help with that and – I think that's, you're absolutely right. I think it's sad that that's sort of a job that's gone away because with all of us doing our own stuff, you forget the importance of how it looks. And which, I mean, anyone going to AGU, walk around and you'll know immediately. Immediately you can tell a quality poster from non-quality, not based on the science, but just from quality how it looks. So it makes well, a big deal. Yeah, and if you have a, a sketch of how something works, like, you know, a, a cartoon cross-section of a system, let's say, uh, if you just draw it in Illustrator yourself, or if I draw it in Illustrator anyway, it's probably going to be a strictly 2D representation mm -hmm. that's got yeah. very crisp, clean lines Yep. and looks very clinical. <laughs> <laughs> But if you had a graphic artist do it, or an artist, you would get these nice flowing lines, a kind of a perspective view, and you would get exactly what it's supposed to be, an interpretation of the real system. Right. Those little nuances that they add certainly add a lot to that figure. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And I mean, one thing that you can do uh, in your graphics program of choice is if you're drawing a cartoon, you can purposefully make it not perfect you know don't use the box tool use the pin tool and draw it with your mouse it it won't be perfect i guarantee it <laughs> uh, yeah yeah that's for sure <laughs> um yeah that, actually that's a pretty interesting idea hmm, i never thought about doing that uh and that's something that it's a technique that one of our professors here uses uh, among other techniques to make really excellent cartoons and I've been playing with it some, and, you know, it's really, you want a cartoon. You don't want a clinical drawing. That's all I can say about it. And I think that's what we lost by having graphic artists go away in departments. That is a really interesting point. Um, I'm going to take a look at some of my old stuff and see how, how cartoony it is versus how, you know, clinical that little cylinder of core is <laughs> yeah i mean look at some of the old papers and sure the actual graphs of data are better now because we can very precisely render them with a computer right yeah but in but... terms of just cross sections or schematics of things 
they're, they're works of art. Oh, yes. I mean, you see that instantly with block diagrams in geology. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest ones. I I try not to collect a lot of old textbooks. I mean, because I want them all, but <laughs> and I only have a limited amount of space. Um, but the ones that I do collect are definitely like the classics that have amazing block diagrams in it because that art is gone. Yeah. And it's too bad. Or illustrations of using something like Compton's Field Geology. Oh, yeah. Mm, yep, that's a good one. Yeah. That, that Believe it or not, I actually own that book. Uh, you know, that's not actually out of the stretch of imagination for me, just because I think that you, I would think automatically that you would appreciate the level of detail in that book. It's, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't bring my students to buy it because there's a lot of stuff that we don't use anymore in that book. Um, right. And it's quite expensive um, for the size and for how much they will use it, but I definitely recommend it immediately. It's an amazing book. And it just, those those hand-drawn figures are what make it, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, that's kind of my two cents on actually making graphics for your poster. Do you have any thoughts on that? I, I'm, that's something I hadn't thought a lot about because we tend to use a lot more pictures than we do graphs, you know, paleo magic. Um, right. <laughs> but it's that's something I'm definitely going to keep in mind. Um, I think that's an excellent point. And I try to always, in every class, I make my students draw a lot. And I'm not an excellent artist either. And they all get super upset about it. But it's so they don't lose that sort of perspective and connection that I think we are losing in academia. So that was excellently put, I think. Um, and I would highly encourage that. That's for sure. And that's one of the things that I mean, as a geophysicist, I will say I was less than excited about taking field mapping. <laughs> but sitting up on top of a ridge and one of our activities, one of the first activities we did when we got to a new field area was to just draw what we could see from sitting up on a ridge. And that was a very instructive thing to do because it made you sit there and examine so you could accurately draw. You couldn't just draw a lump. Well, what... What was in that lump? What did it look like? What was the actual shape of it? You had to notice all these fine details that you wouldn't just looking at it and snapping a picture with your iPhone and walking on down the trail. Oh, yeah. Um, We had a whole, well, a whole half day, (laughs) a whole morning (laughs) that was devoted to drawing this small anticline. And the kids had been there several times before. And so they were not happy about it. And so they just threw some lines on the paper and they'd be like, is this okay? And I'd keep saying, no, no, no. <laughs> and they would get so mad. And I think after they did that and spent the time and went back over it, the next time they encountered having to draw something, it went a little bit better because they started to understand, you know, those nuances of looking at the tiny little details that you may just glimpse over because, heck, I can draw, you know, I can draw this super easy to get the point across, but to actually get the nuance, you know, you still need to put pen to paper sometimes. Yeah. I mean, was that the, the Hutton? Yeah. It's the Hutton anticline. <laughs> yeah. So that, that one itself, actually, the longer you sit there and stare at it, the more you realize there's something interesting going on with faults that you would have glossed over instantly. Oh, you're right. Because there's one big reverse fault and everyone sees that and that's it. But then when you start to look 
at sort of, especially down at the different levels of this really great um, quarry face, you know, you can see sort of the accommodation taking place within the beds, you know, sort of that have been greater def deformation has occurred and it's very nuanced because everything's the same color yeah <laughs> so it's hard to <laughs> it's hard to immediately see that and yeah i don't i don't think all the students got it but a handful of them did so it is a useful exercise yeah so i mean i guess that's i don't use many pictures but i will say if you do use pictures use Photoshop or Pixelmator is a cheap alternative or something to do a little bit of adjustment and cropping and try to make them look nice and, you know, make sure there's not trash in them or <laughs> Mountain Dew cans in the back of a lab picture or whatever. You know, just try to make clean, nice <laughs> pictures, use a backdrop, um, use a piece of paper or something. I mean, yeah, just think of, yes, that's exactly right. Think of all the selfies you see with, you know, crappy backgrounds and you think, wow, if you could have just cleaned that up. <laughs> it's true about your labs too. I guarantee it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, will selfie sticks be in labs? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> We've got lots of things we could tie cameras onto, but uh, yeah. anyway. <laughs> so what, what do you use to make your poster? Okay, so... So you can go ahead and get over get over yourself because you're going to freak out. Um, so I used to use, up until last year, I used PowerPoint. Oh. <laughs> I love saying that to John because it makes him have a aneurysm. Um. Well, I mean, I, to, to be fair, my first poster was made in PowerPoint, too. Ah, see? My first. And then uh, I said, never again. My first 50 were probably made in PowerPoint. <laughs> um, you know, it's just, it's dumb. It's a dumb thing to use. It's impossible to print from. It hates printing poster sizes. And it's actually limited in poster sizes. You can max out. And that max is smaller than most posters allow you to use. Most, um, you know, at, at GSA, it's smaller than that average, I think. Um, and so don't do it. it. It distorts your stuff. It's not for drawing. <laughs> don't do it. It is the, the wrong tool. It is. It absolutely is. And for me to say that is a big deal. <laughs> like, you need to make the investment. And I don't mean money. I mean time in figuring out a different drawing tool. And so I decided to use, because at the time it was provided to me um, for free, was Illustrator. And I will say, and I love to tell everyone this, it took me eight hours to figure out how to make a shaded triangle. <laughs> <laughs> yep <laughs> and i'm not kidding <laughs> like it was eight hours i remember this wasn't a poster i was making a uh, a lab and all i wanted was a triangle <laughs> so i could write three different things on each side of the triangle and it was it was eight hours later and i had this beautiful triangle and it made me learn illustrator because it is not intuitive not at all no in fact <clears throat> no in fact if you have a lynda.com subscription, there is an introduction to Illustrator course that is over 20 hours long, and that's the introduction course. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, not to mention the Illustrator online help, which is excellent. It um, really is. Yes, Adobe's help pages are quite fantastic, so use them. Um, it's worth the time investment, especially if this is something you're going to be doing forever. It's absolutely worth the time investment because the quality of an illustrator poster versus a PowerPoint poster is immediately visible. 
Yeah, and it sounds like a lot of our listeners followed a similar course that we did, starting with PowerPoint, going to Illustrator. Though I do know someone that uses Adobe InDesign to make posters. And really, when it comes right down to it, that is the right tool because it is meant for page layout. Uh, Yeah, that's probably true. That's interesting. Um, I know some people that use Photoshop, which also probably isn't the right Adobe tool, but it's better than PowerPoint. <laughs> it is. And it's one of those things where it's what you know. I mean, I, I know Illustrator, and it is nice for me to be able to make the drawings of figures that I want in the poster, uh, like schematics, in the same program. Right. I'm not you know making them, saving them, exporting them, all this. Uh, so it is really what you know, but you should try things out. And in fact, if I had some more time on this poster, I would try to do it in InDesign, and hopefully my next one I can, just to see what it's like. Uh, That's a really interesting point. I think I'm going to look into that as well, Um, having the luxury of an employer that pays for my Adobe subscription. (laughs) So um, I'm definitely going to try that. But that brings up another topic, too, because... Not everyone can afford Adobe products, even as a student. I mean, they're ridiculously, well, they're ridiculously cheap compared to paying full price for them for most students. Um, But there are some alternatives out there. Yeah. And, you know, I just to give you a price point so you have some idea, uh, I get the student membership price. And right now, they used to sell you the discs, and I remember paying like three or $400 as a student for the disc, and it would be good for a few years, and then I would need to you know, upgrade. Uh, but now they've gone to a yearly subscription, so it's called the Adobe Creative Cloud, and you're looking at somewhere, depending on you get student pricing, you don't get student pricing, that kind of thing, uh, you're looking in the 30 to $40 a month range. Uh, right. I think it's even prorated at our university. So students pay 19 bucks a month for it. Wow, that's that's pretty great. Uh, right, which, I mean, you know, you need to be using it a lot to justify this monthly expenditure. Um, or you can just steal your professor's computer for a while. Um, right. <laughs> so, I mean, Adobe products are absolutely worth it. They just... They're amazing, and there's a tool for what you need. Um, I'm really excited about this InDesign thing, actually. Well, um, <laughs> and I mean, Adobe Illustrator is what we took a scan of hand-drawn artwork that is the show logo <laughs> right. uh, on the website and the podcast icon and brought the scan right into Illustrator, recognized the lines, and did all the coloring uh, in Illustrator and pulled it out and make, make all kinds of digital things with it now. Right, exactly, and they look great, and, you know, it's it's totally worth the investment if you have to pay for it, but if you absolutely can't, there's still an alternative to PowerPoint. <laughs> yes. Um, and <laughs> I know, you know, some people at smaller schools might not have that kind of, you know, the kind of <laughs> prorated availability of the Adobe Cloud that we have at my university, um, but there's a few open source stuff that doesn't crash all the time it crashes a lot but not all the time um and the one that some of the students in our research group use is called inkscape yeah and you know i've actually used it once or twice because there are some plugins for 3d printing that work in inkscape they were designed for inkscape uh 
it's really didn't seem all that bad. It's not quite as feature rich, I would say, but for free, it, it's worth looking at. Uh, right, and I know you love that whole open source business, and so this is one of those. Um, and I feel like there were some open source, I don't remember the names of them now, drawing programs, you know, as much as five years ago that were really buggy. And so it almost yeah. made it too hard to use because you never knew when it was going to crash. Um, I've played with Inkscape a little bit. I mean, I have Illustrator, so I'm going to use Illustrator. But I also want to, you know, be able to tell students they can use this. Um, it as well as Illustrator is not super intuitive. <laughs> All right. Um, but I think that's just drawing programs in general. Like they just want you to put the time in. Um, to learn it but there are a few more intuitive especially when it comes to like joining lines and like nodes on lines that i think are <laughs> good in inkscape they're easier to understand than in illustrator um so it's actually a pretty good tool and it produces some pretty quality figures yeah it really does and no matter what tool you're using whether it's inkscape or illustrator or powerpoint hopefully not or whatever oh. <laughs> um every probably minute or two you should automatically be hitting command s to save your work yes and the cool thing about the new uh, adobe is that it basically has this constant save feature right <laughs> which you can turn on and i immediately turned it on as soon as i learned about it yes i want this to constantly save um because man when it takes you eight hours to make a triangle and six hours in you lose your work it's not cool yeah, and there's even been cases I know of people that had it up and their laptop battery ran out and, you know, oh, well, there went the last few hours of work. Uh, yeah, exactly. Don't do that. Yeah. They will drive you insane before a conference. Uh, yes, exactly, because you'll never do it, you know, when you have time to redo it. It only happens when you have <laughs> right. no time left. <laughs> so yeah, And there's some kind chance. of law or principle or something that states that that happens. If not, we need to make it. I think it's Murphy's Law, isn't it? I guess that would be some form of Murphy's Law, yeah. So we'll yeah, we'll have the, uh, the don't the don't panic corollary. <laughs> it's so true. Even though that's when you need to panic. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So absolutely, but we hope that this has been, you know, kind of helpful as we we brain dumped on our poster methodology <laughs> as people are preparing for this big American Geophysical Union meeting that's coming up in a few weeks. As a reminder, I have a talk there. Details will be in the show notes about the podcast. And and I know that there are several podcast listeners that will be there. So watch our Twitter. I think that at some point during the meeting, we're probably all going to try to go out for a beverage. Oh, so jealous. And chat. It's going to be a lot of fun. Maybe you can Skype me in. Yeah, yeah, we'll have to uh, to Skype your FaceTime. Well, you can't FaceTime because you have Android. That's right. Yeah. So <laughs> I do own an iPad. It's true. So, yeah, we'll uh, we'll do that. But keep an eye out for all that. But I think uh, we might be ready to move on to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Yay. Fun Paper Friday. <laughs> Man, you got a weird one. <laughs> I, I really did. But the title pulled me in. And this is actually an abstract, so it's not a full paper yet. Uh, it's going to sound ludicrous, but I promise that there are other applications. There are. I looked and it up. It was from the uh, APS, the American Physical Society Division of Fluid Dynamics meeting, which was held not very long ago, just uh, 
November 22nd to 24th in Boston. And the abstract is abstract M32.00010, creating a urine black hole by Herd et al. <laughs> I love this because this is one of those times where I think you like your dudeness out trumps your nerdness <laughs> on the picking of this. <laughs> so this is this is a problem that is mainly encountered. Uh, by males that use urinals of you walk into the restroom you use the urinal you have khaki pants on and then you have splattered khaki pants on i i can say i cannot relate to anything in this at all yes so Um. obviously fluid hitting the hard surface of the urinal or whatever they have in the bottom of it uh it splashes, right? The droplets break up and some of it rebounds and makes things kind of gross. <laughs> but there's hope, right? <laughs> there is hope. And, you know, they don't really emphasize this in the text as much as I thought they could have. Because, sure, okay, this is a problem, but let's face it, it's not one of the great problems of science. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's what, true. What it is, is a huge industrial problem. Think about <laughs> materials handling. When you're, right. and when you're doing urine. these industrial processes, yeah, and you're moving uh, large quantities of liquid between processed fats, or you need to aerate something but don't want to splatter it all over the factory floor. How can you do that in the most efficient way? And it's basically the same problem. Uh, right, exactly. Um, when I looked further into it, <laughs> <laughs> because the the part about the urinal is actually the first line of the abstract, which is hysterical. Um. Right. It says, uh, well, well, we'll read the first line of the abstract because it is pretty great. It says, since the mid-19th century, both enlisted and fashion-conscious owners of khaki trousers have been plagued by undesired speckle patterns resulting from splashback while urinating. <laughs> I mean, if that doesn't get you to read the rest of the abstract, I don't know what does. <laughs> Because they keep carrying this on. I mean, then they talk about, you know, these industrial um, uses for this sort of science, which is a big deal, right? I mean, number one, you don't want to waste money by splashing your product everywhere. But number two, things could be toxic. And so you can't have that happening, right? Which is sort of what they go into is this, (laughs) as they describe it, the ideal urine black hole. (laughs) But basically, it means the ideal, you know, non-splattering surface. Yeah, and if if you are familiar with urinal products, <laughs> you'll know that there have been a variety of attempts to make them less nasty. Uh, <laughs> none of them work that well. But once again, inspiration comes from nature. Yeah, this is super cool. And I can't wait for you to try to pronounce this. Uh, not happening. So we will <laughs> we will not pronounce the biological name, unfortunately. Uh, but it's a type of moss that is really good at capturing water uh, using these kind of pillar-like structures and being relatively ductile. So actually, as the drop comes in, the moss basically deforms around it and cushions its fall, kind of like falling onto a, a beanbag chair or something like that. Right. So it's like grabbing all the water that it can get. I mean, the this, this particular moss is really good at it because it lives in dry climates. So in order to survive, because it's a moss, 
it needs to collect as much and have as little splashing as possible, right? Yeah. And, you know, there's there's been some news recently as well, uh, the other part of the inspiration, about this material called Vantablack. Have you heard about this? Uh, you know, I hadn't heard about this until I was reading this article, but I can't stop looking at videos of it. I mean, it's not like looking at anything, but it's the weirdest stuff ever. And it's strange to look at and contemplate. <laughs> yeah, so this is a nanotube material, carbon nanotube material, uh, that it is the blackest material ever made. Light goes in but cannot come out. It is the Roche Motel of light. <laughs> um, that's creepy that it's actually true. Like these carbon nanotubes capture photons, essentially. And so, I mean, we're going to post like a video of this stuff and some pictures, but it's like looking at nothing. Mm-hmm. And it is... It, it's very weird. Yeah. I mean, no, no reflection, no nothing. It's just there's something gone. Right. It's it the, the it, describing it as a void or you know as a black hole is exactly exactly correct. Um, and obviously, this stuff has all kinds of implications in the aerospace and defense industries. Is where it's getting its um, sort of where it came from. Right. And so kind of combining the carbon nanotube pillar technology in it, some of the technology that was gleaned from this moss, uh, they've developed the ideal after extensive study of using artificial streams uh, <laughs> and different uh, pillar height, pillar spacing, pillar diameter, geometry, all of this. Uh, they really figured out the best material to do this and then also other tips that you can use to reduce splashback in any kind of liquid pouring situation having to do with the contact angle and treatment of the surface and that kind of thing. <laughs> um, and a lot of this research was done, I have to point this out, because it's the coolest lab name ever, in the Splash Lab. Right. Uh, <laughs> and there's some videos that will be linked in, uh, one showing the effects of contact angle and all that, uh, one, just showing a stream entering a tank of water, and you see these incredibly complex cavitation patterns uh, that are almost mesmerizing to watch. Uh, and this kind of, I mean, you can take this even to a bigger level um, because having water impact, you know, a tube, I mean, a urinal is one, but any kind of thing like that you can think about dams and you can think about you know the um output tubes for dams and the cavitation is a huge problem because if you have cavitation because of how water is coming into your tube you know you can ruin your entire dam and have catastrophic failures so you know this is one of those things that i imagine some politico will latch onto and say are you kidding me we're funding urine black hole research well, actually, right. it, has, it has such big implications. So you can't just say these things randomly about things until you know about them, you know? I mean, because you can have the loss of a billions of dollar dam structure, but you could prevent it by using this technology. Yeah. And the other thing that they noted that I thought this was fascinating and slightly disgusting was <laughs> the detergents that are commonly used to clean urinals to make them you know, nice and shiny and not gross, <laughs> actually reduce the surface tension of the liquid when it comes into contact with that nice, 
shiny surface that has a micro layer of detergent left on it mm-hmm. and that actually makes the splashback worse so worse. you you would be better not cleaning them with detergents <laughs> gross yeah <laughs> <laughs> or just lining them in this urine black hole which would be super awesome number one <laughs> yeah i mean th- there are products on the market that have pillars they'd say that they're slightly ineffective the pillars aren't tall enough so you get pooling and then splashing happens yeah but I, those are out there in some force now, and they seem to be gaining popularity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's way more interesting than if you're initially grossed out by it, I promise. Keep looking at these pictures. It's really cool. Yeah, and I know, I mean, Shannon sent me an email that she thought I was crazy when I forwarded this article. <laughs> but it worked out. It was actually super interesting. Right. So before we close the show... We actually, if you can believe it, again, have listener feedback. So <laughs> listeners, keep it up. We, we want to keep this role going. Uh, this one's John, from listener it, it, Hannah that we've heard from before. Uh, I was going to say, John, it doesn't count if your mom writes in twice, but, <laughs> but never mind. No, so, no, this is actually from a seismologist that we talked about at Stein and Y Session, a great book. I mentioned that the footnotes in it, there's a Star Trek reference somewhere, and they're really worth. And so Hannah sent us some footnotes that she liked when she was studying for her comps. Uh, yeah, I, I'm printing this off and putting it on my door. It's fantastic. Yeah. So the first one, it's a little long. I'll hit the, uh, the high points of it. But it says, seismologists, like other geoscientists, have an ambivalence toward statistics. <laughs> Finding them valuable but often insufficient to require discarding models that do not raise to statistical significance. Our adi- often our attitude recalls the adage that statistics should be used as a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination. <laughs> I mean, that's got to be highlighted, right? That's amazing. Yes. So, and there's a, uh, a reference there, Menard, 1986. Uh, so... There you go. You can you can reference this. Uh, uh, yeah. But there's another one that I know that uh, you liked as well. All right. And so there's another <laughs> another one, which, man, I love that first one a lot, too. Um, so this says, ordinary language undergoes modification to a high-pressure form when applied to the interior of the Earth. A few examples of equivalence follow. And so we've got two graphs of ordinary meaning, dubious, high-pressure form, certain. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Uh, this is so good. Uh, ordinary meaning, perhaps. High pressure form, undoubtedly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then lastly. The, the last one's my favorite. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely the best. So ordinary meaning, uncertain mixture of all the elements. High pressure form, pure iron. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's classic. And that's geochemistry. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, both of these are absolutely going on my door. I'm sure I'll get some hate mails about that. But <laughs> yeah, no, I mean it's it's true. It's a great. It was a 1952 quote, even so, uh, even ex- back then. Exactly, and the first one you were talking about, um, that was by you know the guys that did seafloor spreading. So, um, it's it's funny, but it's also a really important point, right? Like. It shouldn't be the end-all, be-all. It should help support what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, we'd like to say if you enjoyed the show, 
please go on iTunes and review us. It helps other people find the show and uh, lets us know how we're doing. Feel free to send us feedback. Let us know what you'd like to hear about or what your opinion on making posters is or anything that uh, you disagree with us on or agree with us on. We just love hearing from our listeners and it lets us know that there are more than, you know, 10 of you out there. <laughs> well, also our, our show statistics help with that too. But we really do like hearing from you. So Shannon, how can they do that? Well, please send us more anti-seismologist jokes at show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Um, as always, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. <laughs>